Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Julia Brown, your Familiar Stranger today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. My guest today is UC Irvine Professor of Anthropology, Kim Fortune. Kim is an anthropologist of science and what we now call Science and Technology Studies, or STS, and is currently serving as president of 4S, which is the Society for the Social Studies of Science. Try saying that four times fast. Her book, Advocacy After Bhopal, about the aftermath of the Union Carbide Gas Leak disaster, won the 2003 Sharon Stevens Prize from the American Ethnological Society. Kim is also the founder of the Disaster STS Research Network, established in the wake of the Fukushima nuclear disaster in 2011 in Japan. Kim's research suggests that anthropologists can be useful during disasters and not just afterwards when we sort through our ethnographic findings. This is also about being interdisciplinary in practice to contribute to both theory and policy. We recorded this interview at the 4S conference in Sydney on Gadigal land. In the opening address, Kim suggested that STS researchers can challenge how people see and act in toxic times, environmental, political, technological, etc., and that Indigenous knowledge can be part of what we have come to call science, and how all kinds of knowledge can be enriched through a coming together of different disciplines and the inclusion of marginalised perspectives. Kim and I talk about how political restlessness drives the development of new theories. We talk about teaching ethnographic methods and pushing the boundaries of where and how anthropology is taught, including to elementary students and also experimental ethnography and writing a thesis when you're also an activist. I loved that we talked about Gregory Bateson's double bind theory, which I mentioned in a TFS blog post on ethics in psychiatric anthropology and which Kim applies to expertise and how anthropologists try to avoid essentializing the views of their participants. We'll have resources in the show notes for that and other concepts you might not be familiar with, such as computational toxicology. Now, I had a bit of a cold at the time of the interview, hence my slightly blocked vocals, sorry, but our conversation and the 4S conference generally kept sparking my energy. In fact, it left me pondering whether STS and Indigenous STS provides a stronger future for anthropology altogether. If you've got any further thoughts on this and anything we talk about, please do join this conversation by emailing us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com or tweeting us at TFS Tweets. Here it is, my conversation with Professor Kim Fortune. I wasn't an anthropology student as an undergraduate. I studied history and philosophy, and I was very, very theory-oriented. I thought that was the quick way to a new understanding of the world. I ended up in an anthropology department because I I took a few courses in the um, as a non-matriculated student at Rice, where I ended up doing my PhD and just became enthralled by the capacity of anthropology to get you outside of your own usual ways of thinking. But a confession I've made many times is I really didn't respect how much field work can contribute to that transformative process until I was actually in the field. 
I tried to not do field work for a long time, and I would hole up with my Althusser or Spivak. But I ended up doing field work in India, and ultimately at the site of the 1984 Bhopal disaster. I was there many years later. But in the course of that field work, I realized how the empirical world, if you can really just let yourself encounter it, can help you understand the limits of your own ways, entrenched ways of thinking better than any theoretical framework can, no matter how brilliant that theoretical framework is. Yes, and I'm wondering how then you teach ethnographic methodology to students who have not yet experienced fieldwork. Because I, like you, had this realization only when I was there doing ethnography, what it was really about. So I'm always curious to know better ways that we can actually teach it and prepare students. It's hard to teach it before you do it. Uh, I think one way is telling fieldwork stories about the ways that the world runs beyond what you can explain, because I think that's something that students can hear. I also think that teaching ethnographic research design, which is really puzzling through how do you study something that you know not yet what you study, is you begin to become an ethnographer then, because it really is an extraordinarily patient mode of understanding. You really have to hold back your own assertions of thought. And so I think research design, when you're playing with how do I what is it I'm studying and how do I get at it is a, is a great training to be an ethnographer. And then, of course, just jaunts into the field. And a story I like to tell is that for many years I taught most of my undergraduate students were engineering students, and they didn't need to learn anthropological theory. I wanted them to learn to think and act with it. And one of the most successful ways I felt like I did that is when I took them with me into school children's environments, schools, you know, from six to 10-year-olds, and asked them to understand how children were, had been socialized to think, and then to try and enroll them in ways of thinking that were more able to apprehend the kind of complexity, especially of environmental problems. That was our focus. And the way that that situated these engineering students in a deeply sociocultural environment they would come back to our university campus with their hands-on kind of how culture works in the world, really understanding how school teachers are cultural producers, how children are cultural actors. And so just a few hours where you, you're situated in a context that you're unfamiliar with, I think, can create an ethnographic sensibility. So when it comes to teaching Ethnography 101 to elementary children as I've heard that you have done. How do you go about opening up those critical thinking skills for children? Children are amazing thinkers. Um, they're also very socialized, even at age six or seven. And so asking them to think about what they think is, you know, kind of taking them through talking exercises about what they think is normal and possible and right. And I think rendering it explicit invokes a kind of reflexivity in them. But then also asking them to think about what others in their space, close and far, how they think they might think about it. And we taught a lot with kind of scenarios. You know, what would happen if there was a shop across the street from the school that was sending big black smoke? 
but it was their shop and they were making money for their families. And what do you think people would think and what they would do? And, you know, sort of pulling young kids. And, you know, part of the challenge for my university students was getting them to design those scenarios where Mm. you could actually enroll younger kids with language different than what my students were used to, you know, the kind of even word choice. And so imagining how you draw out an imagination for different ways of understanding the world was the pedagogical challenge for the university students. And then watching them, sometimes it didn't work, and they would draw out a scenario, and, you know, the six-year-olds would just stare back at them. <laughs> but it, it, that kind of creating social moments that we could participate in together was really the tactic, I guess. Do you see a space for anthropology being taught all the way through school then? I would love for it to be, and I would like it to be taught where it's a habit of mind and where it comes very kind of intuitively to young students, but also where they're able to name the kind of knowledge it is because they learn to both do and think about the value of science. I want them to learn and be able to articulate the value of more interpretive forms of knowledge because I think that we want them to grow into citizens that are advocates for cultivating that form of knowledge in our societies. And I think we too easily fall into thinking of anthropology as illegible to the public or it's hard to convey. And my sense is, well, we better work on that. Absolutely. So when it comes to experimental ethnographic methods, which I know was something that was born largely from your work in Bhopal and... I was reading a bit of your ethnography and I was really resonating with how you described how difficult it was to confine what you were looking at and that process of sorting through what's going to be significant at the expense of letting go of other focus points. Mm -hmm. And then you came to an empirical focus on advocacy um, as something that you yourself were participating in. Uh, So I think you established two things that you felt were important in being able to narrow down your ethnographic focus, and one of them was establishing field site parameters and the limits of that, and also learning to work with inconsistencies and that incompleteness in regard to how the social formations of disaster play out. This requires a continual interpretation of what other researchers might disregard as noise. So part of your process, as I understood it, was working out how much of that noise was of ethnographic significance Mm -hmm. and then analysing that through this lens of advocacy and then negotiating what ethics means as well in that context. And, uh, yeah, can you elaborate on any of that um, that's, that might be particularly useful for young ethnographers to think about? Because I, I feel that we're often very overwhelmed in any situation. I mean, in a disaster zone, what you were dealing with, that is certainly an extreme situation where you must have felt compelled to do something, perhaps yep. more immediately than other ethnographers might. Anyway, I will hand it over to you before I just keep... (laughs) No, that's a a great tangle of things to be asking about. So I'll back up and, you know, one of... I now... One of the things I I say as a core research interest and focus is experimental ethnography itself. 
And it really does go back to my time in Bhopal. So in the, I was in graduate school in the late 80s, and it was a time of really great theoretical vibrancy. Feminist theory, post-colonial theory, critical race theory was coming into anthropology and just revitalizing from the kind of middle. And a key teaching was that we can use empirical studies and ethnographic studies in particular to really question the explanatory power of established social theory. And so how do you decide what to focus on ethnographically, but to query is our understanding of gender or social groups or whatever actively querying that, kind of presuming that those constructs were tired. That was a kind of starting point. And I think in Bhopal, I learned that that kind of using ethnographic work to query entrenched ideas certainly had social theoretical mandate, but also a profoundly political mandate. Mm -hmm. Because one of the experiences of disaster is like, the way we're thinking is clearly not working. <laughs> like you really are humbled by the limits of established institutions, legal frameworks, ways of scientific understanding where it's disaster is humbling at a really core level. And so wanting to do ethnography that was responsive to the limits of established ways of dealing with things. And of course, well, so what's that? Mm. And so I learned to think of it as kind of looping of like you have to do the ethnography of the discursive space you're going to work in in order to even decide what the focus of your ethnographic work should be. And so the experimental is not just in doing something different because different is kind of interesting and edgy, which it sometimes becomes. But an experiment, the experimental commitment is being a, pro, a profoundly political restlessness. Like what mm. we're doing and thinking is not up for the job. And so the experimental is an inactively trying to kind of get to the next iteration. And, you know, frankly, not with hopes that you're going to arrive at the perfect place. But and so the experimental commitment really is continuing. And in I finally figured out what I would write the Bhopal book about, which was different than my dissertation. After, you know, it's like, what is the center? Am I writing about gas survivors? Am I writing about the legal process? Am I, you know... What was your dissertation about? <laughs> my dissertation was about the way that activists used writing as a practice to do their work, meaning to understand what they should be doing and to push it out into the world. And act, the activists that I worked alongside, we wrote in many different modalities. We wrote for the courts, we wrote press releases, we wrote for student groups, we wrote in the idiom of like human rights reports. And so I wrote this quite crazy little dissertation that was full of flaws but that emulated the different writing forms that we actually wrote in in the field to show that the form of the writing actually, because when you decide how to write as an activist, and I would argue as an ethnographer, it literally embodies your understanding of who you're writing to. Because as an activist, you're trying to reach, you're reading the world in order to reach that world. And so the way that figuring out what idiom to write in is a way of saying like, who's out there? What's the discursive tensions that we're entering into? 
So that was my dissertation. But my book ended up having an American side to it, and that was very clearly responsive to my ethnography, which is the corporate, uh, multinational corporate response to Bhopal was that it, Bhopal, could not happen here in the United States. And it just, it one, I wanted to learn if that was true, but I also felt like I needed to respond to that. So I did years of field work in Bhopal-like communities in the U.S. to try and understand whether the structural conditions that led to the Bhopal disaster, if there were similar conditions in the U.S. And there were. And so that has led to this SDS disaster network because you've been able to apply some of your thinking to situations like Hurricane Katrina, is that? Well, that's that's a, there's an interesting... Might be a bit of a stretch, but... <laughs> well, it's actually, there's a funny stretch to it. So in my early, I did, I got my PhD in 1993, so, in, so I did the American part in the mid-90s. And at the time, there was a, there was some NGO money at the environmental grassroots, and so... Bhopal did raise keen awareness of industrial risk in the U.S. that had not been there before. And the primary legislation in the U.S. after Bhopal pushed more of that risk information into the public domain. So there was a lot of activity. But in the days, that in the mid-90s, the, the new idiom that I was, I was considered a global studies scholar because globalization was really just cohering as something anthropologists studied. And I know it sounds very funny today. Uh, but I didn't really think of myself as a disaster studies scholar. It wasn't a, and barely, most environmental anthropology at the time was not industrial, industrial environmental issues. Now there's a wealth of really important work on toxicity and chemicals. That was not around then. And so I was really a critical globalization scholar then. Around Hurricane Katrina, I started getting pulled in as a disaster scholar who, I was like a grandma of disaster studies. And so I taught a little class on theorizing disaster to students who were going to Katrina and internship programs. And by then there was a growing body of work. For example, there's in disaster studies, the way that the 9-11 disaster in the U.S. formed the way that Katrina was responded to. And so this sense that cross-disaster studies, there was something there that we needed to attend to. What was there specifically to attend to? Well, so the way that the management of disaster, sort of you learn from one disaster and it conditions how you're ready for the next disaster. And an example that the anthropologist David Bond uses, which I repeat in teaching a lot, is after the Exxon Valdez oil spill, the U.S. Coast Guard promised to be more ready for such spills. So when the British Petroleum Deepwater Horizon disaster happened, they were ready for a surface spill, not a spill. You know, so all on the ready for the wrong disaster. And that's even within one domain of oil spill disasters, much less. And that's a real interest of mine now is coupled disasters where you've got extreme weather, chemical plants, social stratification, you know, that kind of all boils together. And still most risk management is very siloed. The, the flood people 
are a different world than the chemical plant people. Than, and so now the, it's a real cha- coordinational challenge to bring those communities together. And I think there's a role for anthropologists and STS scholars to help convey back to those communities why they're so siloed, why, what it looks like. We know a lot about when different cultural communities come together. I mean, how can we kind of help them with that coordinational task? Similarly, after Fukushima, I was pulled into some discussions as someone, not as a Japanese specialist or even a nuclear specialist, but as someone who knew how to think about the structural conditions of disaster. And in Fukushima, there was painful realization among scholars that even among scholars, we didn't know how to talk to each other across our specializations. Flood people, nuclear people, Japanese specialists, and realizing that, you know, we, we, we really should be better prepared to coordinate. And disaster often caused scholars to respond quicker than we're used to. And that was something I learned in Bhopal, where I mostly was a writer for the activist groups that I work with. And you don't write for a year. Like, you mm. you need something ready to go in 24 hours. And so that kind of, the temporality of disaster is really demanding. On the other hand, it's really important that scholars of disaster keep a very long-durée historical view. So that kind of oscillating between very kind of tight responsiveness and a structural big picture view is, I think, the task of an anthropologist of disaster. There are many kinds of disaster researchers, some of whom are most responsible for what they call boots on the ground, like mm. how many trucks do you need, how many. And, you know, that's not our job. We should be able to help those kinds of disaster researchers zoom out when they have a second to do that. And so understanding your role in a kind of ecology of researchers is, I think, really important. And it's really particularly visible the need to do that in disaster research. And perhaps the ethnographic sensibility to realize that, you know, even by acting in an immediate way while you're doing field work when it is called for, for you to act immediately doesn't mean that you can't then reflect on those experiences differently later. But perhaps that that is where other people not trained in ethnographic thinking might feel quite paralyzed because it's a commitment to everything then and there, whereas we can commit to things then and there, but we can also step back later and change our minds. Yeah, I actually came to think of that as a core teaching of anthropology to, for example, an engineering student, mm-hmm. where you want them to own and be very good at the form of expertise they're developing as an engineer, but also realize that expertise in its very nature can focus you on some things and not on others. And so you need to be able to kind of do your job and then step back and actively seek other perspectives and so the way that expertise really is a double bind. I mean, it's a way of seeing the world. That's why it's so powerful and important. At the same time, it puts blinders on all of us. Yeah, could you explain, if it's possible to simplify, how you apply the double bind theory to environmental risk in the case of Bhopal? Yeah, double bind theory was largely associated with Gregory Bateson and his colleagues, and it it came from a theory of communication where when you're asked to do two things at once and you can't do both 
one without undermining the other. And it was critical to a theory of schizophrenia where you're asked to do that. It really it can in, it can be induced pathology. It just kind the of the mixed messages. Yeah, the mixed messages. Yeah. But it also, um, and he Bateson himself argues this can be a site of quite profound creativity because you can't no established rules tell you what to do. And in in a sense, this is what a disaster is. If you if the old rules apply, you just go fix it, even if it was. After the disaster, if you knew how to fix it, you'd just go fix it and, you know, call in more people to help you. And a real disaster, part of the disaster is you don't know how to fix it. And so the need to be both operational and aware of the limits of your available operational forms, that simultaneity is critical to what a disaster is. And I think recognizing that is the space of work, and it's where expertise is actually at its best. Um, so if we can help experts of many kinds, whether they're engineers or boots on the ground, disaster responders or school teachers, realize the kind of double bind of expertise where, you know, like with the teacher, Shoshana Feldman, who's a great feminist theorist of education, she said there's something I don't think she uses the term double bind, but contradictory about being a teacher because if you teach in a masterful way, you haven't taught because you've overly imposed, you know, kind of what is learned. And so the the dance of teaching is in creating a space where it's not you're not conveying what you already know. That um, can be a dialogue. Yeah. Um, and so the, the double bind, I think Gayatri Spivak uses it quite deeply in her work as both the space of teaching and the space of politics, where it is a kind of space of dance between knowledge and a recognition of the limits of knowledge. Relations across difference are often riven with double bind because you, you know, if, you're, if you value the coming together across difference, the last thing you want is to wash out those differences, and yet how do you create a space of encounter? Another line of work that you're doing at the moment and that is largely relevant to this SDS conference that we're at is about the emerging field of toxogenic genomics. Is mm -hmm. that correct? How is difference conceptualized there? That's a great question. So since my work in Bhopal, I've, I've come to focus a lot on the environmental health sciences and working really as an anthropologist of science, even more than as an anthropologist of law, which was one way you could have described me back then. And that was really driven by frustration with what science became when it became part of a legal dispute. And so the questions in just the... In, even when you've got very clear harm to people, like in the Bhopal disaster, the difficulty of representing environmental injury in courts of law, just astounding. Mm. Um, and it is still astounds me all these years later, the illegibility of toxics before the law. And I've actually thought a lot in terms of Spivak's notion of the subaltern. It's like, it's not that the subaltern doesn't speak, it's not legible in the dominant idiom. And toxics still are there, despite a huge amount of powerful research. There's a kind of resistance to legibility. Um, and so my interest in 
environmental health sciences, toxicology, toxicogenomics is where kind of toxicology started using genomic methods and trying to get at toxicity. And it's very been in the last two or three decades, the wealth of work in the environmental health sciences to better understand toxicity. But part of what they've learned is that if you can look at a given toxicant or a given health outcome from different lenses, you actually understand the phenomena more. It's like not trying to objectify and study. Like one of the ways they talk about it is like if you just study what they call the apical outcome, the, the tumor, that's one way to understand it. But there's also a lot of you can understand it in terms of genomically in terms of the outdoor monitoring, the exposure data. There's a lot of different data that would point to the, a possible outcome of toxic exposure. And so toxicogenomics kind of became something called computational toxicology, where what it does is bring together a lot of different ways of looking at toxicity, kind of where, where you can look at it through this data set or this analytic lens. And interestingly, if it reminds me of Bateson's early anthropological book, Novin, where the, the presentation of the book is he looked at one ritual through three different analytic lenses, where the argument is really you understand it better if you understand it from these different kind of partial perspectives, a kind of aggregate of partial perspectives. And in many ways, I think that's what computational toxicology has done, is recognize that their subject is difficult and rather than trying to kind of get it right, you know, keep pushing just one analytic lens, but to multiply the ways that they try and get at what's going on. And it's actually something that I think that both anthropology and STS bring to knowledge politics is I think we have a record of research that demonstrates that explanatory pluralism enriches the knowledge space. And I think we can point to that in order to remind our colleagues in more narrow fields of expertise that that, that, that that there is a record of that that they should build on. Yes, and I think this is a big challenge in neuroscience, for instance, which I am vaguely familiar with because of my uh, research. And there was always this emphasis on a really micro level. But then when I talk to neuroscientists about understanding things more holistically, I mean, it could be quite overwhelming. And it there would be a sense that expertise could be lost by zooming out too far. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's an exciting area that will hopefully become a little bit more tangible perhaps in the future. But I think at the moment we just have to hope that we can come up with clear ways of conceptualizing these complexities. Well, and I think we can give our colleagues in other fields some language for articulating and thinking about how different knowledge forms come together, which is not, I mean, really leveraging what they bring to it, but just showing them how they can put their knowledge form alongside others and it's a richer knowledge space. And one last question. Uh, we've talked a lot of, at this conference about Indigenous SDS and difficulties in integrating Indigenous knowledge with Western science paradigms. And I'm wondering if there is a way from what you've been thinking about to avoid a recolonization of 
marginal perspectives? It's a hard question. I think that the historical weight of old stratifications don't go away, and we have to be very mindful of the the tendency to reproduce those. And so I think very proactively bringing what have been kind of marginal or repressed knowledge forms into dialogue, but with, I think, attention to never forgetting kind of that history. I think it shouldn't make us shy to bring them into the dialogue. I, I also think that it's the translation into a dominant idiom is, is not at all straightforward. And so it's as much in designing the space of coming together. It's sort of like designing curriculum for eight-year-olds. It's like design, what would it, being very thoughtful about what the coming together looks like, not assuming it comes organically just no, and to I, lick, you know, link different knowledge forms. Yes, and I think what you said about having a kaleidoscopic view is yeah. really powerful in yeah. terms of capturing that idea of shifting and reconceptualizing all the time as we need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you say yesterday? Um, basically, the problem is the center does not hold. Yes, and right, right. <laughs> yeah, the more we can reinforce that idea. Yeah, it, it certainly way. creates a better space of collaboration to recognize that, and this is the experimental commitment not and sensibility, is like we need to be experimental because we're not up to the task at hand. There's a real practical and ethical call to responsibility that drives that experimental commitment. And that was it, me and Professor Kim Fortune. Today's episode was produced by me, Julia Brown, with help from the other familiar strangers, Jodie Littrembeth and Simon Theobald. Our executive producer is Ian Pollock. Our assistant producers are Diana Cato and Matthew Fung, and our interns are Elena Rizvi and Alyssa Asmolovskaya. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet us at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music is by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe. Thanks so much for listening. See you in two weeks. And until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>